like they they advertise one match by crashing a car into one of the wrestlers. Not a total victory of Russia, which now we're seeing. This he goes on. Gigantic bag of flaccid dicks. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Which, when you open them up, you find out that they're all cockroaches inside. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. No, I don't know if anybody else is ever going to laugh this hard at anything we Probably. say. Uh, we can actually both look out my window right now and see some very pretty yellow flowers that I'm going to be eradicating. this uh my wife is binging the latest season of a romantic drama series uh in the other room and uh she was just giving me the rundown of what i had missed uh earlier in the evening and um it reminded me of a policy i have um that that's influenced uh by television and i and i want to find out if you have anything similar in in your own life um, anytime I wind up having to go for medical treatment, I, I pay very close attention to the, uh, medical staff. Uh, like anytime I, anytime I have to go to the ER, um, I pay really close attention to the medical staff and, um, I, I have determined, uh, from watching, uh, a number of medical series, but especially, uh, Grey's Anatomy, if too many of my doctors are too pretty, I'm going to insist that I get sent to another hospital because somebody almost always dies. And if the staff around me are too pretty, I'm the ordinary one and my life is in danger. It doesn't matter what the injury is. Could be that, you know, I've, I've been injured in the garden. Could be, a serious burn, I don't know, food poisoning, whatever, doesn't matter. I don't care. If I'm in the ER and the doctors are too pretty, I, I want you to transfer me to another facility. I will pay out-of-network rates on my HMO. I don't care. But that's that's a rule I have from watching way too many seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Do you have any other, like, am, am I, am I, is this just another thing that makes me a complete weirdo or do you have any other, any other kind of, kind of rules like that in your own life? Well, um, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a U.S. history teacher up here in Northern California. Um, and I will tell you this, uh, those two questions do not need to be mutually exclusive. I do okay. have one and you're a weirdo. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so my brother, uh, he served in the military, uh, over in Iraq. Uh, and and spent a lot of time uh, over there, 22 months, if I recall correctly. And I told him to never, ever tell anybody about his girl back home, about the farm that he just purchased, uh, 
or about any kind of marital plans he might have. Mm -hmm. Now, he, as far as I know, was never dating a girl back home, had never bought a farm back home or anything like that. But I still maintain that you, if you are serving in the military, you never, ever, ever let people know uh, about your girl back home or about your uh, the farm that you are one down payment away from finishing uh, yeah. and then yeah. you're going to marry her? No, none of that. Uh, so so there is that suspicion. I also, uh, back in the days before cell phones and things like that, I didn't drive until I was much older in life. Um, and so okay. friends would come and pick me up. And very often, uh, you know, as, as happens, you get delayed or, or what have you. And I knew mm -hmm. that... Uh, the best way to find out if somebody was going to be delayed was to get my stuff ready and be on my way out the door, and then I'd hear the phone ring. And so there were a few times where I was like, ooh, I haven't heard from them yet. I bet you they're going to call soon. I'd better hurry that up and get out the door so that they can call. And uh, it worked enough that, like, wow. you know, by my doing that ritual – uh, I did not induce them to to call in some sort of weird psychic way, but it certainly felt that way. Yeah, no, so, I can believe that. That makes yeah, sense. I I would say you know do not tell people of hopeful things if you are in a dramatic situation, um, because that that is a sure way that you become somebody else's some you you then become the bystander in somebody else's main story. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, yeah. So. All right. Uh, yeah, well, so for me, um, I have some really dazzling and wonderful news. Uh, so Capital Punishment yeah. ended its run uh, at Luna's here in Sacramento, or at Luna sold um, and uh, has retired and blessed the shit out of him for it. Um, I, I'm very happy for him. Uh, the result was we were without a venue, um, which is right. perfectly okay as my partner. Uh, is also with child. She had been punning for two for a few months there. Oh, wow. Um, right. So the thing was, was, okay, we're going to take a hiatus and we need to find a new venue. There is yeah. a specific venue here in Sacramento that is perfect for our show and has been for a long time. And for a number of reasons, we we did not hook up with them. But now that my partner and I are on the same page about this, um, okay, might have something to do with having a different partner. Um, now that we're on the same page about this, uh, I am happy to announce that we have come into an agreement with the comedy spot in downtown Sacramento. Nice. First Friday of every month. So starting on March 1st, nice. we will be down there. So if you are hearing this, that probably means you have about three months to save up your money, uh, for March 1st. So All right. Get down there, March 1st, the comedy spot for Capital Punishment's uh, triumphant return. Very cool. Mm -hmm. I am stoked as for you, man. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, very cool. Last time we were talking, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to yeah. take you, I'm going to depress you so hard tonight. Um, and it's going to start with Bugs Bunny. So, it, you're not even going to see it coming at first. Oh. Um, and I'm sorry. I, I truly I'm am. Gonna... Um, and here we go. So okay. in 1950, you so hard <laughs> in 1950, Mary Melodies put out Hillbilly Hair. Um, right. And it actually does feature Bugs Bunny, whereas the other one featured Elmer Fudd. 
um, and it mixes in the Rowan County War with the Hatfield-McCoy feud. And there's a fair amount to cut through on this cartoon, so I'm going to synopsize the cartoon first. Then I'll analyze the cartoon, and then I'll give you more historical context afterwards. Okay. Um, because this one and the Rosanna McCoy movie both kind of bring up the questions about violence that come after the romance. In okay. The okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So Bugs Bunny is vacationing in the Ozark, labeled the Ozark. <sighs> now, the Ozark does not traditionally include Kentucky or West Virginia. Um, but there you go. And this is what I was talking about last time, as you've got a broadening of the geography uh, so as to include to these go along the, yeah, yeah, to go along with the broadening of characterization. Right. Yeah. So uh, he... Uh, Bugs accidentally stumbles into the feud between Kurt and Pumpkinhead Martin. Okay. All right. The Ozarks actually span from Oklahoma to Missouri to Arkansas to Kansas. Uh, nonetheless, it is attracted geographically in people's minds to the tug fork when it comes to stereotypes to laugh at. Okay. And I, I think that that's a fair analysis, actually, because if I were to tell you Oh, it's someone from the Ozarks. Even even you and I, knowing what we know, would have in our you know mental quick file, yeah, a similar aesthetic to yeah. uh, what we would see uh, in in the other area. So yeah, um, I mean there are some similarities in mm -hmm. you know the demographic of who was settling in the region. There are some you know yeah. Yeah, there's so, some commonalities. There. Yeah, the shorthand and the overlap is there. Yeah. So nonetheless, uh, you know, the, there you have it. So you've got the Martin brothers uh, who both mistake Bugs Bunny for being part of the Koi family. And this time the feud is a backdrop to what we're seeing, and it's not central to what we're seeing. So that's a, a new thing. Um, and I find that interesting that in 1950, the feud is such a shorthand that it has now become a map painting. It has now become a backdrop. Um, and as soon as Bugs encounters Kurt Martin, he gets shot and then asked a question. Be, uh, let's see if I can do it. Be y'all a Martin or be y'all a Koi, rabbit? Um, okay. So you shot a potential ally. <laughs> like, I, I, I cannot emphasize that part enough. So, of course, this leads to Bugs making the obvious joke. My friends say I'm very coy, which doesn't do him any favors. Uh, and uh, I believe it's Pumpkinhead who says, square off, you shoat. Me and you's a feud on account of I'm a Martin. And then he raises his gun to shoot Bugs again. Uh, of course, Bugs Bunny ties the gun in a knot, which you might remember yeah. that. Well, actually, yeah. it's Kurt It's Kurt, It's Kurt. Uh, Kurt Martin that he does. Um, okay. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it, when he shoots, it gets undone and it shoots Kurt right in the face. Uh, Bugs walks away and he runs into Pumpkinhead Martin, the brother of Kurt Martin. Bugs reverses okay. that shot as well. And Pumpkinhead has to shake the buckshot out of his hat and his ears. He also pulls a dead bird out of his breast pocket. Okay. So they go hunting for Bugs. And it's the all the language shorthand for these guys are rubes and listen to how these people talk. Yeah. Um, once they find Bugs Bunny, they shoot and miss close. Bugs Bunny goes and hides in a convenient shed marked danger explosives. Um, neither seems to notice as they chase him in, possibly showing that they don't know how to read. 
Um, and of course, they need light inside, so Bugs lends them his lighter before ducking out. At first, Kurt can't work the lighter, and Bugs shouts from a safe distance to keep trying. Then it works, blowing them up. And Kurt comes out, quote, I think y'all are using too strong a fluid. Okay. So there's a lot there, right? Yeah. And the next scene, the two of them are chasing bugs. We'll get that critter if and it takes till doomsday. And as they run totally barefoot this whole time, by the way, uh, past a general store that has the sign Square Dance Tamari Night. The good time to paint Tamari. Yes. Yeah. All right. So then Bugs comes out dressed in drag and he whistles for them and he asks them, pretending to be a beautiful woman, to practice with him for the square dancing tomorrow. And of course, they're delighted. So there's a jukebox and it appears to be the stage where the actual band pops up and calls out the square dance steps. Uh, the calls are within standard deviation of what, we, what would be called out in a square dance, although, quote, chicken in the bread pan, chicken in the dough, skip to the new my darling. Uh, does strike me as a little bit more parody than real. Yeah. Uh, Bug switches out of the drag for a fiddle and a hat, and he starts calling out increasingly ridiculous directions to the brothers. They unfailingly follow him as he guides them outside. Quote, promenade across the promenade across the floor, sashay right on out the door, out the door and into the glade. Everybody promenade. Step right up. You're doing fine. I'll pull your beard. You pull mine. Yank it again like you did before. Break it up with a tug of war. Now in the drink and fish for the trout. Dive right in and splash about. Trout, trout, pretty little trout. One more splash and come right out. Shake hands like a hound dog. Or shake hands like a hound dog. Shake again. Wallow around in the old pig pen. Wallow some more and y'all know how. Wallow around like a big fat sow. So All right. Then they dance with the pigs and and they do exactly everything he says. And so, you know, yeah. they're they're yeah, so yeah. this is what you do in a square dance. Everybody has square danced. Everybody at, at, in 1950, most people have gone through public school. They're square dancing. That's I, a thing. I was gonna say, I wonder what Henry Ford would have thought of all this. He would have loved square it. Square dancing. Yeah. Really? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's square dancing, it's good publicity. Okay. Um, so they Bye. then dance with the pigs as partners, not knowing the difference at this point, of course. Uh, and yeah. then grab a phone's grab a fence post, hold it tight, womp your partner with all your might, hit him in the chin, hit him in the head, hit him again, and the critter ain't dead. Womp him low and womp him high, stick your finger in his eye. Pretty little rhythm, pretty little sound, bang your heads against the ground. So they're smashing their heads into the ground, they're hitting each other, they're doing I mean, all the things, right? That's fucking metal. Yeah, right there. <laughs> really, I mean, Dude. it was you know, I want to hear Gwar do this, you know. Yeah, no kidding. Um, then he guides, <laughs> he guides them Gwar into wood. it. Yeah, uh, he guides uh, or green jello, you know. Oh like, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, he then guides them into a hail bay maker and rhymes the whole way. They're exhausted, but they have to continue to follow the directions, of course, even as he leads them off a cliff. And when they land, it's at a river that separates two mountaintops. Oh, hey. Mm-hmm. So more of their rubes, more blending of multiple regions, cultures, no pun intended, but distilling them down to a stereotype and then broadly yeah. paying that for laughs. Yeah. It's honestly not that different than Betty Boop or Elmer Fudd or the Spike Jones short. It's really not. Yeah. Yeah. So let's combine Boy. these feuds. Okay. 
When last we left the Hatfields and the McCoys, Sally Hatfield, John C's and Rosanna's baby, had died of the measles. Right. And John Pardon C me had for a second while I get my <laughs> second yeah. beer. Bang your head against the ground. <laughs> um now you remember John C had married Nancy, Rosanna's cousin, and the daughter to Asa Harmon, whose murder might be considered the first death in the family feud. Right. So it's eighteen eighty one. Right. All right. The following year in August, so August of 1882, although some would say September of 1882, another election day in Kentucky, the violence explodes again. Ellison Hatfield, the younger brother of Devilance Hatfield, the second lieutenant of the in the Confederacy who fought at Gettysburg, he was reportedly drunk and in a brawl that involved himself, an unnamed Hatfield brother who wasn't Devilance or Wall. My money is actually on good Lias Hatfield since he had also brawled with Famer and McCoy, Famer McCoy earlier that day. Mm. Um, but uh, Famer, Tolbert, and Bud McCoy were brawling with uh, Ellison Hatfield, so three and one. Uh, some say it was them taking issue with how John C. had treated Rosanna. Others say that it was an unprovoked attack. Uh, regardless, Ellison Hatfield was stabbed 26 times by the McCoy brothers and then shot. Wow. All within sight of everyone present in Matewan, uh, or did we decide it was Matewan? Yeah, I think it's Matewan. Yeah, yeah. Matewan, West Virginia, which wow might sound familiar. Yeah, because that was the pro-union town in Mingo County. Yeah. Now Ellison didn't die for three days, and what's interesting here is that others say that the crime occurred on the Kentucky side of the river. But the historical marker is in Matewan, West Virginia, so I'm going to go with that. Okay. Okay. Meanwhile, the McCoy brothers were arrested by the constables, and they were being transported to Kentucky for their crime. The marker about their capture, this is one that's funded by the state government, the marker about their capture by Devil Ants Hatfield and Wall Hatfield uh, and company states that, quote, Floyd McCoy witnessed his brothers being captured by Wall Hatfield and taken to West Virginia. Wall said if Ellison died, McCoy's brothers would be killed, end quote. So that means that the Hatfields went to Kentucky and abducted these three who were either en route to due process or awaiting due process. And the problem is a lot of sources disagree, but most seem to confirm that the three never got to Pikeville, Kentucky. Uh, either way, they crossed the state line, which will matter later. So okay. They, they did get across to Kentucky. They were then abducted from there and taken back to West Virginia. Okay. Or the crime happened in Kentucky, and they were abducted yeah. from there and brought back to West Virginia. Okay. One so, way or the other, they're in West Virginia now. Yeah, and having yeah. crossed state lines. Yeah. An important detail. So Ellison took three days to die. Um, and after that, Devil Ants with roughly 100 or 120 people. I was off by a factor of five. Um, a little bit. <laughs> so he, it's a sizable enough group as it is. Yeah. 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 All right. So imagine if I had 100 fingers and toes. Like I have 20. Ugh. I right. was wrong by that gross of a number. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So, all right. So, Eldritch Horror much. Yeah. <laughs> Devil Ants Hatfield, with, with roughly 20 people, including Selkirk McCoy, took the three McCoy brothers out to pawpaw bushes just over the Kentucky border. 
tied them up and executed them for the death of Ellison. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now they were left there for Randall McCoy to find them. According to testimony at a trial nearly a decade later, quote, Tolbert was shot twice in the head, three to four times in the body. Famer was shot in the head and 10 to 11 times in the body. And the top of Bud's head was shot off and was down on his knees, hanging onto the bushes. Tolbert had one arm over his face. Tolbert was 21, Famer 19, and Randall Bud McCoy was 15. They were hauled home on a sled and buried in one coffin. Gee, many Christmas. Now, the thing is, locally, from a from a vigilante, weregeld sort of perspective, most people were cool with this. Okay. They had killed Ellison in cold blood in few, full view of everyone. Okay. Kind of, they had it coming. Yeah, they may not have deserved it, right. but they had it coming. And that seems to be the overall consensus in the area, but some of that might be like, I don't want to get involved in this shit um, as well. Yeah. So obviously the McCoys didn't agree with this and neither Mm. did Kentucky lawmakers. Uh, After all, (laughs) you kidnapped people and then brought them back into the state to kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after this explosion of slaughter, the feud simmered down in terms of violence, but not in terms of effort or hard feelings. Um, it continued when Perry Klein, remember Perry Klein? Ooh, that Perry geez, Klein. That guy again. Yeah. Now, remember, he had every right to, to like, from, from the historical record, he seemed to have a legitimate grievance against the Hatfields and against Jim Vance. Yeah. Um, now, by this point, he's a successful lawyer in, in, in Pikeville, and he helped Randall McCoy issue warrants for the arrest of those who'd killed McCoy's sons. Devalance heard of this effort to issue warrants after those murders, and he sought to stop a series of suits by Tolbert's widow, Mary, against his, uh, against a business partner of Tolbert's. Okay. Okay. So Tolbert's dead. His widow is like, yeah, well, that means his estate goes to me. And Tolbert's uh, business partner is like, whoa, wait a minute. I get my cut first. Okay. So Devil Ants, not wanting these warrants to go through, basically says, Yeah, I'm going to side with that guy over there against the guy that I basically had killed and or killed myself, um, sticking it to the widow even more. Now, this means that Randolph and his son Calvin, who was helping Tolbert's widow with the suit, um, uh, Randolph had insisted shortly after the murder of his sons that the arrest of the Hatfields and their accomplices in the murder, uh, he insisted on that, which means 21 warrants were issued for the arrest of Devil Ants and many others believed to have taken the part in the murder. Okay. okay. So he's calling for it. Um, and he and his son are traveling. Now, all of these guys that were uh, a part of the pawpaw mur- murders, um, yeah. they were indicted in absentia in Pikeville. But given that this was Pikeville, Kentucky, and the Hatfields lived in Logan County, West Virginia, this would mm-hmm. have meant deputizing and extraditing. So the Hatfields were actually able to escape arrest for years, although Devil Ants did move several folks up into the hills to ensure that they would evade capture. Ultimately, this meant that the governors would have had to have conversations and agreements about how to go about this. 
And given yeah. the reach of Hatfield money and the reach of the money interest in, in the East, such a mass arrest of a wealthy and influential family would not sit well with West Virginia. And okay. a lot of the sources I looked at said that because these suits came in June of 1884 by Mary, the widow of Tolbert, uh, that uh, they would uh, that would cause Randolph and Cal and Calvin to gather in the same spot. That this actually ends up being the first direct attempt that Devil Ants made on Randall McCoy's life. Okay, because if you stop McCoy, then all of these suits disappear. And all of these warrants disappear, and you can go back to business. So, okay, Devil Ants sent Cap and John C. Hatfield, Mose Christian, whose name you might remember, yeah, Lee Wilson, Ellison Mounts, um, the son of Ellison Hatfield. Uh, so Ellison Hatfield's the one that just died. His his illegitimate son, Ellison Mounts. Um, and others to hide themselves in the brush on the mountainside above the road over which the McCoys would travel when going home after the 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 lawsuit trial for Tolbert's okay. widow. Cap stopped the son of the Justice of the Peace. His name was Tom Stafford, uh, whose, by the way, his election was the election site at which uh, Ellison Hatfield had been murdered. So he stops Tom Stafford and has him describe what Rannell and Calvin were wearing that day and how their beards were cut in court. And, of course, Stafford described them and then went about his way. He, he gets sent on his way. All right, thank you. Off you go. All right. Okay. Go home. Don't tell nobody we talked. Now, the unfortunate coincidence here was that two of McCoy's nephews, who had nothing to do with the feud, were also similarly dressed and barbered. Oh. So the result is that they get ambushed and killed. Wow. Now, because this Talk feud is not fashion victims. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. oh. Why did you have to choose the blue gingham? Right. Today? Like. Yeah. And the thing is, is shortly after this time, it was recorded that Asa Harmon's second son, Larkin, was killed. But the thing is, every record that I went through to find this said that Larkin was living into the 1930s. And the other thing is that no other son's death lines up. And the only thing I could think of is that there's so many names being repeated. It's possible that I just failed to be able to square the accounts uh, okay. because several monographs have stated that a son of Asa Harmon and by extension, therefore, a brother of Nancy's. Remember, Nancy is Johnsy's wife and cousin yeah. of the three McCoy brothers who were illegally abducted, detained, and executed for the death of Ellison Hatfield. Yeah. Um, that that points to a specific Lark McCoy being killed. Uh, and so while I don't doubt that a brother of Nancy McCoy's was killed shortly after her three cousins were killed, I cannot be reasonably certain that it was Larkin McCoy. In fact, I think this is an issue of people compressing time and mistaking names because there were a few times through the family trees where it was like, wait a minute, that is not the guy that you're naming. Like, you know, there, there were times where they combined people. Oh, okay. All right. So four years later in 1886, uh, Lewis Jefferson, Jeff McCoy, the son of Asa Harmon and brother of Nancy, 
got into a fight with the postman, like you do. <laughs> and he ended up stabbing and killing the postman. Oh, gee, me fucking Christmas, really? Which is a federal job. Yeah. And it's one that's given out as, like, patronage to various yeah. state. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a guy named Fred Wolford, who okay. was in Pike County, Kentucky, not right. West Virginia. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, at that time, Cap Hanfield, Hatfield, Devil Ants' second son, was listed as a constable, but I could not figure out where. Still, okay. Cap and his friend, Tom Skunkhead Wallace, chased, yeah. <laughs> oh. chased, chased down Lewis Jefferson McCoy and shot and killed him on the bank of the Tug River. I think that's the lark that got killed. I think okay. it's Jeff. Okay. Okay. Now, evidently, Jeff had taken issue with the fact that after the failed attempt on Randolph and Calvin McCoy's lives, that Wallace and Cap thought that Tom Wallace's oh, it's so fucking weird. So Tom <laughs> Wallace had an estranged wife, uh, okay. his first wife. Um, they thought that Tom Wallace had tipped people off about the ambush on Randall and Calvin. And that, okay. therefore, Jeff was one of the people who was warned and he took or or he heard about it. And so he took issue with their killing uh, and ambushing, you know, his cousins. Okay. Um, this leads to Tom and Cap, Tom Wallace and Cap going to his uh, estranged wife and beating the shit out of her. Oh, that's lovely. And the thing is, she is a half-sister to Nancy and Jeff McCoy. Okay. So they beat the shit out of her and her mother in full view of Wallace's father-in-law, forcing him to watch. Oh, my God. So okay. I think that he and uh, a friend tried to capture Tom Wallace and take him to Pikesville. Uh, but Wallace escaped, leading to him and Cap now hunting down Jeff, who had just tried to capture Wallace, um, and uh, hunting him down across the Tug River toward West Virginia. Okay. The only reason I could think of for Jeff McCoy running to West Virginia was because he might have been seeking refuge at the home of John C. and Jeff's sister, Nancy Hatfield. Okay. So he didn't make it to his destination. Uh, Skunkhead Wallace, tech, uh, Tom Wallace, was found dead uh, the next year in 1887. Although there are some sources that I read that had him living into the 1930s again. Oh, my um, God. But there's enough sources that I found that actually have him dead that, given what's coming, makes more sense. Okay. So there's a lot. There's obviously a lot there, right? Uh, yeah. Which means, then, if you combine the murder of Jeff McCoy by Cap Hanfield with the likelihood that Cap's mentor, Uncle Jim Vance, was the one who killed Asa Harmon... Nancy's father and the brutalizing of her half-sister with a cowhide whip by Cap as well, that leads to Nancy having a hell of a reason to have a vendetta against that family. Yes. All right. So more on that yeah. in a bit. 
Okay. But I want to get back to the impact of the murder of Jeff, Jeff McCoy. Jeff McCoy was the nephew of Randall McCoy. Right? Because he right. and Nancy were the, the children of Asa Harmon, who is Randall's brother. Right. Randall had just lost three sons a few years earlier. By some accounts, that broke him mentally, and he was a drunkard who never recovered from that trauma. Um, okay. And some other accounts have him, uh, by, by he, I mean Jeff. Um, yeah. Some people say he never got over the trauma of his father's murder. But okay. other other people said that actually he was well thought of by both families and he stayed entirely out of the feuds, which some people were able to do. But for the quarrel with Fred Wolford that turned deadly, there's actually little account of him doing anything harmful to anyone. And Cap Hatfield's reputation for quick and brutal violence is a recurring theme in many of the sources. Um, but still, it's now 1886, and another McCoy is dead at the hands of another Hatfield and his ally. Now, at this Christmas. <laughs> now, at this point, the indictments and the warrants, which were never successfully served because of Devalance's connection and influence in his own state. Um, in 1887, Perry Klein successfully petitioned the new governor of Kentucky, Kentucky, a Mr. Simon Bolivar Buckner a former Confederate general who'd been captured and then traded for General George McCall during the Civil War. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, he being uh, Perry Klein, convinced the new governor to renew the indictments and seek the arrest of the Hatfields and their allies who were involved in the murder of the three McCoy sons. Further, he included the murder of Jeff McCoy's suspects in those indictments, bringing the total up to 23 indictments. Now, wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, Governor Buckner issued a reward for capture system, which brought a lot of bounty hunters to Pikesville. Perry Klein seemed to take charge at this point, as Randall McCoy also faded to the background with his grief. Again, you lose three sons. Um, yeah. It'll break you. Uh, yeah. So, and here's where the story splits and reconnects very weirdly. Two of Jeff's brothers, named Bud and Jake, heard that Tom Skunkhead Wallace was working on an extension of the railroad along the Big Sandy River, and they went down there and captured him. Wallace was reportedly in the Pikeville uh, jail for four weeks before engineering an escape that included the escape of John C. McCoy, who was in jail for a non-feud-related stabbing. Okay. So Wallace, who was an ally of the Hatfields, helped a McCoy escape who was also locked up at the same time as he was, but for a different stabbing that had nothing to do with the feud. Good Lord. All right. Now Wallace's escape indicted or incited Perry Klein to further efforts and application was made on his behalf by governor Buckner to governor Emanuel Willis Wilson of West Virginia for a requisition for the indicted men. Okay. Now, John B. Floyd worked in the office of the Secretary of State of West Virginia, and he, John B. Floyd, was a nephew of the member of, of the member of President Buchanan's cabinet back in, in the 1850s. Floyd aspired to be his party's candidate for governor uh, in West Virginia, and to that end, he wished to have his home county of Logan solidly behind him. So John B. Floyd knew that the, knew the Hatfields personally, and he had heard of the application to Governor Wilson. 
he sent word to the Hatfields that there were bounties and that there were orders to extradite them from influential Kentuckians picking on this notable West Virginian family. Under John B. Floyd's instructions, the Hatfields set up a petition saying that they were peaceful mountain farmers who had been greatly oppressed and abused by the relatives of a Kentucky desperado named Randall McCoy. Further, they prayed that this petition would convince Governor Wilson to not further the ends of the Kentucky villain by giving them over to be tried. Okay. The Kentucky villain. Yeah, and a desperado. Yeah, Jiminy Christmas. So, in the meantime... Hatfield allies and family members rode up and down the creeks and and the branches of half of Logan County carrying their repeating rifles and their petition. Turns out every man they met signed that petition. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, well, <laughs> like I've got a repeating rifle with me. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this works to stall things, and Governor Wilson was for a time persuaded to issue a requisition. So while negotiations were pending between the two states and the two governors, Wilson seemed to draw them along on purpose, leading to a series of telegrams back and forth uh, with Governor Buckner uh, upping the offer to $500 each for Devil Ants, Cap, and John C. Hatfield, as well as Tom Mitchell, um, who was for some reason under the name of Tom Chambers and of Tom Wallace. Now, in October of 1887, Governor Willis wrote to the county attorney, Lee Ferguson of Pike County, saying that if $52 was sent to pay the expenses incurred by Clerk John B. Floyd while investigating the case, papers for the arrest of all the indicted men, except for Elias, good Elias, and Wall Hatfield would be issued. And for his efforts in consideration of the Hatfields, Devil Ants named his son born the following uh, February, Emmanuel Willis Hatfield. Okay. Okay. So, okay. in West Virginia, the Hatfields are very much enmeshed in the state executive branch, right? You've got yes. the, the Secretary of State and the governor doing all kinds of things. I mean, and hell, he named his final, his, I think it's his last son born, too. Uh, yeah. Emanuel Willis Hatfield after the governor. Yeah. Now, since Perry Klein had the indictments reinstated and the re rewards had been upped for the arrest of Devil Ants, Jim Vance, and the others of the Hatfield clan uh, in Kentucky and Pikeville by, by Governor Buckner, uh, this served to attract bounty hunters to the region to apprehend the fugitives in West Virginia and bring them back to Kentucky for trial. Okay. So... You now have a different sort of person coming into Pikeville, Kentucky, and starting to cross the Tug Fork River. Okay. And it's now becoming clear that the Hatfields are feeling kind of hemmed in uh, by all of this. Yeah. But it's not like they weren't prone to violence already. Like, they tried to <laughs> murder, Yeah. you know, Randall, Randall McCoy and his son Calvin, who were coming back from a widow's trial against her business, her hus her dead husband's business partner, that they had yeah. murdered the dead husband, you know? So. Wait, the Hatfields had murdered the dead husband? Yeah, you remember the Paw Paw Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, sorry. Yeah. It's so, just so many people killing so many people. It's, yeah, well, it, it really, here's the thing, though. There's no. not that many dead yet. I mean, <laughs> it sounds terrible, but, like, we've grown up on these movies, right? Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. three McCoy brothers are dead. 
um, yeah. the McCoy sons. And then uh, Tom Wolford, the the postal guy, is dead. Um, yeah. And uh, so is uh, Jeff, who everybody thought was Larkin. Uh, McCoy, yeah. he is also dead. Um, Ellison Hatfield is dead, as is Asa Harmon Hatfield. So if you add yeah. that up, I think that's six. And then... Six or like, seven, yeah. Yeah, and then with the death of uh, Tom Wallace about a year later... Oh, and there also was the the guy who lied in the trial, quite probably. Right, yeah, yeah. Remember, because that was a self-defense yeah. uh, thing, though. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And then... Did those two brothers get killed? You know, I, no, one of them. I, I know they didn't actually, because it was squirrel hunting McCoy. Yeah, he lived. Yeah, yeah. So you've got fewer than ten people dead, um, which to me sounds pretty good, considering this is 1886 and the whole thing started in 1863. Yeah. Um, but it's it's I guess it's like the in between stuff, the enmity that's that's there in between, and the yeah. attempts at killing people are really high. Yeah. Now it's about to get a lot worse. So uh, Perry Klein had the indictments reinstated uh, and the rewards went up. Uh, like I said, bounty hunters are in the area um, and the feud is now becoming known nationally because newspapers are reporting the events because there's a lot of bounty mm-hmm. hunters coming to the area. Okay. Um, and it's depicting the Hatfields as predatory outlaws roaming the woods along the Tug and Big Sandy Rivers. Um, this localized feud gets sensationalized into a national Shakespearean story from a series of brutal murders. Now, with all of these bounties, you can imagine the type of people who are coming into Pikesville and who start crossing the tug on the regular. And among these was a man who claimed to have ridden with Jesse James, a man named Frank Phillips. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, in the interim, John C. Hatfield had continued his philandering on his wife, Nancy, who divorced him sometime before 1895. Frank Phillips, a duly appointed state agent to handle the reception of those indicted and against whom the warrants had been issued, led raids into West Virginia repeatedly to capture those who had been listed on for the bounty. And amongst those that he had captured was a man mistaken for his stepson, uh, not Phillips' stepson, just a man mistaken for his stepson, due to the stepson being born out of wedlock, um, as well as Selkirk McCoy and Mose Christian and Wall Hatfield. Devil Ants' okay. older brother, who was right. himself a justice of the peace. All right. All of that was by December 20th of 1887. Frank uh, Phillips was getting shit done. Yeah. Now, because of the speed and alacrity with which he moved on New Year's night, just after the full moon, the Hatfields and their allies deciding that this was the quickest and best way to get rid of all the indictments that were leading to the raids that were capturing their side. They figured the best ways to kill Randall McCoy in his family home. Okay. And while certainly a dramatic way to handle things. I mean, it's an escalation that nobody could see coming, you know? True. Yeah. So, um, some people have it that uh, Devil Ants was the mastermind of the attack, and that, I think, is up for debate because he definitely was not there. 
Um, mm. He had a flaring up of a lung issue that he seems to have been struggling with since being in the Traitor's Army. Um, but it's okay. it's entirely likely that as the active patriarch in the Hatfield family, and as the chief employer of many of those who were their allies, Devil Lance Hatfield at the very least sanctioned the New Year's Night attack. But by all accounts, it was led by Uncle Jim Vance and Cap and Cap Hatfield. So the okay. details of this, this is where you start to pick up your body count. Um, Jim Vance led eight other men, although some accounts have it closer to 20. Um, some idiots would say 100. Uh, but, <laughs> um, okay. So this is going to include John C. and Cap Hatfield, as well as Ellison Cottontop Mounts. Uh, the illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield, right. um, who is actually rumored to have had um, developmental delays. Okay. Uh, and they they all went to Randall McCoy's home in Kentucky. Jauncey accidentally fired at the house before they were ready to attack, warning the Randall and his family inadvertently, uh, and then the two sides exchanged gunfire, and then Vance lit the house on fire. Um, my guess is Molotov cocktail style uh, yeah. on account of what people use for currency. Uh, many of Randolph's children actually successfully uh, fled into the woods, although because it was New Year's Day evening or New Year's night, yeah. um, it's really cold. And so a lot of them suffered from frostbite in the next few days okay. because they were sleeping. Um, McCoy's daughter, Alifair, who was 29 at the time and had suffered from polio uh, as a child, therefore was somewhat disabled. She was shot to death by Cottontop Mounts, who himself was, like I said, considered to be developmentally delayed at the time. Hence the name Cottontop, because yeah. his brain is soft. Um, and So as she's trying to flee, he kills her because he was told to shoot anybody who runs. And he didn't distinguish because right cool. yeah and McCoy's wife Sally was badly injured some say solely by Uncle Jim others say that John C and Cap were also involved because she attempted to comfort Alifair. um regardless of what actually uh did occur it's known that she suffered a severe blow to the head rendering her mentally incompetent for the rest of her life oh my god yeah Randall McCoy's son, Calvin, was also killed trying to escape, but Randall was actually able to escape the house and hide in a nearby pig pen at the insistence of his wife before she'd gotten attacked because she figured if he's gone, they won't hurt anyone else. Name she was wrong. Yeah. So reports of the attack made newspaper headlines across the country, and again, this flared into the uh, the Hatfield-McCoy feud up in people's imagination. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Twain even included a similar feud in Huckleberry Finn. Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, again, reporters traveled to this remote region of the country, and to sell newspapers, they exaggerated the details of the conflict. Uh, following this attempt on Randall McCoy, several things happened in quick succession. Largely due to the murder of 30-year-old Alifair McCoy, the crippling of her mother, Sarah McCoy, um, uh, a lot of things just, just started speeding up and accelerating. Much of Pike County took issue with the violence against the women during this phase of the feud. So 
kill the brothers because they stabbed the shit out of your brother. Okay. Yeah. Go to their yeah. house. Yeah. Kill the daughter. Cripple the mother. Kill another son. Not okay. Yeah. And if you're doing there's, the math. There's a clear line here. They're kind of, you know, it's it's very gendered, but at the yeah. same time, there's a, you went to the dude's house and attacked his family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like the other things. Okay. Okay. Gross, but fair play. But yeah. now like what the, you know, and me yeah. personally, I'm like, none of it's okay, but you know, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't live there. So yeah. Um, I would point out at this point, Randall McCoy has lost five children. God almighty. Yeah. And his wife. Like, yeah, functionally. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, actually yeah. he's lost six children, but he's lost five to gunfire. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, he lost Rosanna by this point too. Yeah. She died. Just Jesus. Yeah. yeah. So, um, first Perry Klein and his wife, Martha took in the surviving McCoys in their home. Uh, secondly, Frank Phillips immediately got the okay from the Kentucky governor Buckner to gather up a posse of 38 other men, including Bud McCoy and James McCoy, two other sons, Mm, uh, uh, to go into West Virginia and get the Hatfields. Then he also upped the reward, which summoned more bounty hunters to the cause. So now it's January 8th, 1888. Okay. Now, so by this point, we have seen the body count go up by two, mm-hmm. um, as well as a horrific beating and wounding mm-hmm. of of the matriarch of the family, as well as a horrific beating of a man's ex um, yeah. in front of her now husband. So in January 8th, 1888, uh, Frank Phillips and at least one posse member tracked down Uncle Jim Vance and Cap Hatfield. Uh, Uncle Jim refused to surrender, and by most accounts, he was shot in the head. It's speculated that witnessing this led to Cap fleeing for quite some time, actually. Um, interestingly, Uncle Jim uh, had bought and sold a lot of land in the heart of what was known as the billion-dollar coal field. Uh, among the people who were brought back to Pikesville by the posse were uh, that was sent under the direction of some of the largest financial stakeholders in the area on the Kentucky side of the river, nine of them just so happened to all be owners of land along the route of the coming railroad, including Uncle Jim. Hmm. Within 90 days of Uncle Jim's murder, uh, or killing actually while serving a warrant because... Uh, well, I don't know. I I don't know extradition between states very well. So his yeah. death, yeah. Um, within ninety days of that, Kentucky financiers would all would own all the land of the indicted West Virginians, with the exception of Devil Ants Hatfield's land. Huh. Yeah. Funny that. <laughs> remarkable, <laughs> remarkable, isn't it? How the capital class manages to to uh, you know make a buck off of literally everything. Look at these rubes with their feuding. (laughs) And I think that is a underlying feature of why we're so interested in this feud. Because we're looking at that part, the visceral part, Mm -hmm. because we're being directed to by the people who own the newspapers and the railroads. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
All right. So uh, the day, the next day, so Jim gets killed on January 8th. Uh, the next day, the January 9th raid takes place that nabs Wall and at least two other me members with minimal bloodshed. Um, two other members of the Hatfield clan, minimal bloodshed. There's another raid against the Hatfield home, uh, but Devil Lance wasn't there. So this time, uh, there's a raid on the Hatfield home, which, if you remember, used to be Perry Klein's home. Yeah. So the posse stays there and waits for for them. This includes the McCoys. And just the women are there. And they're like, yeah, Devil Ants isn't here. The, the men are, are all gone. There's no way you're going to catch them. And they stay there just to make sure they don't come back, uh, just in case he comes back the night, you know, that night. And he didn't. So, so then... 10 days later, you get to what's called the Battle of Grapevine Creek. So again, up to December 20th, a bunch of people had been nabbed. Yeah. Um, And then the New Year's Eve massacre. Then a week okay. later, yeah. then 10 days after that, like things are just bop, 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 bop. Yeah. So you have what's called the Battle of Grapevine Creek. And the Hatfields responding to the murder of Jim Vance and trying to end the feud in the best way possible, which is to kill the other side. They ride out to attack the Phillips Posse, which had at least two McCoys in it. And the Phillips Posse was also angling to end the feud by either apprehending or killing as many Hatfields as possible. Yeah. So Grapevine Creek is close to Matewan. And some of it was the land that Devil Ants and Perry Klein had argued over years and years and years before. Yeah, two decades before. Mm -hmm. So there's a yeah. pitched gun battle here, and it's the largest fight of the whole feud, um, which it is really rare to have a pitched gun battle in a feud. Yeah. Um, you don't see those many that many. You see murders. You yeah. see people skulking about. You Ambush. See, yeah. Predation. Yeah. Right. But you don't see an actual pitched battle. Um, here it was, though. There's only two people killed in the whole battle um, that involved more than 40 people with guns. Um, although that, that speaks to several things, the density of the cover, <laughs> yep. the the difficulty of the terrain. And and I mean, I, I hesitate to say this. Because we've been programmed to call these people rubes, but you got to wonder about the competence of the of the of the combatants. Like, there's a reason that ambushes work really well. You're usually yeah. right up on them. Yeah, like, it's true. Yeah, it. You know, like, I, I, these are people who are used to hunting game. That's true. That's you know. So yeah. you do have good use of rifles and such, but it's a whole different thing when when you're it's shooting your back. target is <laughs> is shooting back yeah yeah um and and actually i i i'm going to retract that that third factor there because uh we know from studies the rand corporation did in vietnam which led to some mm -hmm. weird well maybe not weird but anyway which led to significant changes in in uh us military doctrine mm -hmm that um for every lethality caused for every, for every for every for every person shot and killed in combat there's some ridiculously high number of bullets fired yeah uh and and we also know from uh anecdotal and and you know broad spectrum other evidence that uh in warfare 
soldiers very frequently flinch or aim intentionally high and and there is there is a subconscious bias toward not killing yeah and that's and that's soldiers who've been like trained to yep. to so you know i i rescind my my third statement but it is <laughs> with with sheer amount of ordnance on display it's right? pretty remarkable that fatalities were that low yeah well and it's one of those things of y'all been killing at each other for years and you yeah. have a spate of just like from 1881 to 1888 you're you're averaging one a year you know I yeah. mean, you're having three here one there and stuff like that but like yeah but those are all much more up close murders. Yeah. You know, and again, and, yeah. And and there's there's uh there's a significant difference in um I have a burning hatred for this person, these people, and I and I I have I have my enemy in in position to to deal a death blow. Right. As opposed to like a gunfight. Yes. Which is a very different beast. So very right. true. Very, very yeah. true. So 40 people with guns. Um, only two people get killed. Although at, at the out at the end of the battle, um, a deputy, Bill Dempsey, um, who had supported the, the Hatfields, um, he had been shot up quite a bit and he was executed by um by Frank Phillips um after the battle. Um and it mm. was yeah, he was actually begging to just be allowed to bleed out asking not to be shot any further. Phillips did not listen to said request. Um, now, following the engagement, Phillips withdrew to Kentucky, uh, having succeeded in rounding up nine members of the Hatfield clan. So this was successful in that they captured nine people. Okay. Um, Gun Governor Emerson Willis Wilson of West Virginia, he entered the fray and at least to all appearances on the sides of the Hatfields. Wilson demanded from the Kentucky governor, Simon Bolivar Buckner, that the illegally taken prisoners be returned to West Virginia. You did not abduct them legally and lawfully. Therefore, their arrest is null and void. Therefore, they need to be yeah. returned. Since this posse that Phillips had led didn't hold up, West, hold up to West Virginia standards and had crossed over into West Virginia land to abduct the Hatfields and their supporters, mm -hmm. He said yeah. this this issue is a issue of West Virginian sovereignty. Okay. So what follows is a series of telegraphs back and forth between Buckner and Wilson uh, that led to Buckner stationing units of Kentucky's guard to the border area to protect against retaliatory raids, either by West Virginian troops or by supporters of the Hatfields. Oh, wow. Because that's what uh, Wilson was implying in threats in the telegraphs that he was sending. And he also complained to the federal government. Wow. So here's America 25 years after the Civil War, give or take. And a family feud is threatening to escalate things again. Wow. Yeah. And all of this is happening in prime real estate for coal and timber that the railroads are going <laughs> to need to protect the country as they never had before. <laughs> uh-huh yeah we yeah so, so finish this you know yeah get this get this figured out so we can get in there and make make dough yeah yeah now uh among the nine men who were taken to kentucky to stand trial for the murder of alifair mccoy uh okay. and the others and calvin mccoy 
uh, and the brothers and, you know, Jeff, um, was Wall Hatfield, the Justice of the Peace in Logan County. Um, and a man not without some connections in the government of West Virginia. Now, Governor Wilson demanded the return of the prisoners by arguing that they had been denied due process and had been illegally extradited by Kentucky. Kentucky argued, so here's the problem with Wilson's position. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) Yeah. You might be decided to be right. They still have to actually comply. Yeah. So... And that's why I wonder if Wilson has really got his heart in this. Because he also, like, is like, if this gets finished, even if it's an injustice, we can get business rolling through here. Yeah. You know, and and we can make you a lot of money, Hatfield. Like, also that. But, like, more importantly, like, we need to get this railroad going through here. Yeah. So, uh. Kentucky argues that the prisoners were, in fact, in custody and under indictment, and that, therefore, that process needed to be filled out first, uh, and that, therefore, the state of Kentucky had no obligation to release them to West Virginia or to any any other entity, regardless of the circumstances of their arrest. So you arrested them illegally, therefore, everything you've done since then has been wrong, whereas Kentucky is like, well, we have them now. And <laughs> possession even, is nine tenths of the law. Yeah. Even if we as, did it wrong, we still have to take care of business Kentucky style now. Yeah. So in April of 1888, the case gets appealed by Governor Wilson to the Supreme Court of the United States. Okay. So the Supreme Court issued no finding regarding the legality or illegality of the arrest, but they did agree with uh, with Kentucky in their argument that no federal law existed, which would prohibit the prisoners from being tried for their crimes committed in Kentucky, regardless of the nature of the events, which resulted in them being in custody. So, so you're saying the Supreme Court fucking punted. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and they're saying, look, you you do have every right to do justice in Kentucky. Um, yeah. Regardless of uh, regardless of how the arrest happened, you have a yeah. right to your justice. So, at the same time, though, I feel like um, that's a cop out, though. I mean, like I like I understand, yeah the 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 basic legal precept that no, no, you were this is the government of Kentucky. You have you know due process within your state. That yeah, okay. But there's there's a definite, uh, you know, interstate commerce clause, you know, federal mm-hmm. supremacy kind of issue going on here. And like, right. you know, you're, you're just going to sidestep all of that to go, well, no, you know, uh, uh, totally ignoring all, all of the all of the, you know, thorny issues that are actually involved in this. Uh, we're mm-hmm. we're going to affirm that, like, no, you can you can try these guys, but like mm-hmm. we're not. We're not going to do anything with with the issue of, you know, uh, interstate uh, uh, extradition. Extradition. We're we're not right. we're not going to touch that. But like, you can totally try them. Like, fuck you. Can you like you know stand for something here? You know, well, one way or the other. Like, pick a fucking side. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's and, it's it's not that different from let's say that the the police seize items in your house illegally and then use them as evidence to try you for whatever crime yeah 
that's not legal. No. And and that has been established mm-hmm. repeatedly. This is um, similar to that. This if you really arrest them is. illegally, yeah. then you're holding yeah. them is then born of an illegality. Yeah. Yeah. The Supreme Court said, no, you just need to make sure that you do the arrest properly now. Well, so they were released due to the improper arrest and then promptly arrested. Uh, what a crock of shit. I mean, you know, okay, you're free to go. By yeah. the way, you're under arrest. By and the now, way, you're under, yeah. Because now you're on Kentucky soil. Yeah. <laughs> so fuck that. Uh, so it's a, <laughs> a chicken shit punt. Yeah. Come on. And it was a seven to two punt as well in favor You're of Kentucky. You're fucking kidding me. Yep. See, and the only, you know, here's the thing. I, mm-hmm. I hear that and, and my response is exactly what my response was, but it's only because you and I have grown up in an era mm-hmm. and lived our adult lives even more in an era of, you know, five, four. Yeah. (laughs) Decisions. This is like, no, no, things were not as partisan back then. This is all of the justices being kind of legal cowards. You you may remember that a few years later, Plessy versus Ferguson is going to happen. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) You know. Um, you know, I always think Plessy versus Ferguson is earlier than it is. No. I know. I know. Oh, it's like, not. logically, yeah. I know, but emotionally, I know. I'm like, you want to put it like right after Dred like... Scott. Yeah. But no. But no. <laughs> so, all right. So the nine men who are in custody get released and then get rearrested proper like, uh, and now they are in custody pending trial. <laughs> did the deputies raise their pinkies when they did it? Like, I hope. You know. <laughs> I hope. I hope they like proper like that like, things like with the, with, perfect diction yeah you know yeah read off of cards i i genuinely hope they opened the door to the jail and yeah. then said you are hereby arrested and then closed and it then, and then it, shut you know? the door yeah like just on a cheeky level so <laughs> so now these guys are in custody pending trial the feud was right. effectively over in terms of the violence notice that devil lance hatfield was not amongst the prisoners and neither West Virginia nor Kentucky authorities sought his arrest after this, despite the fact that everyone knew where he physically was. Well, because who has the money? Right. And, and also, and, we've got yeah. enough. We've got enough. Like, let's just get yeah, this okay. done. All right, there's yeah, nine okay. of them. Let's, just, there's let's nine just, of them. Let's just get right. it over with. All right. Also, Cap had already left, and I think John C. had actually come back from Washington territory later, and he ended up in custody later. Um, actually, John C. ends up serving 13 years, uh, and then he gets paroled for one of two possible reasons, either because he saved the warden's life by killing a fellow inmate, because, of course, yeah, or he four. reduced his own sentence due to an appeal over procedure, which... <laughs> okay. No, I can see either one. Yeah. I can I can legitimately see either one. Yeah. You know, Chauncey, <laughs> all of the depictions of Chauncey's role in this in this whole thing. Yeah. Come comes down through the historical record to me as being kind of a uh like a really poorly trained golden retriever. 
Yeah. Like, like instead of his tail knocking stuff down, it's his dick. But yeah. Yeah. He's just a, he's just an idiot. Yeah. Like that's how he's depicted. <laughs> I don't know how how true to him that is, but I okay. do know that after Nancy left him in 1888 and took up yeah. with Frank Phillips and married Frank Phillips in 1888. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. The same Frank Phillips? The same Frank Phillips. <laughs> what the fuck, Nancy? Uh, dude, if you have that much of a vendetta against them, okay, I can you're going to go have sex with the guy. And marry yeah. the guy who is bringing in all the Hatfields all the yeah, time. Okay, yeah, right. I see that. Yeah, but yeah, also <laughs> of course, like, Jesus. All right, but uh, but John C. did remarry twice more after that. So, <laughs> okay, John C. Yeah, <laughs> you you have you have a fly. Right. I need you to keep it closed. Right, zippers you, have been you... invented now. Yeah, can you just do us all a favor? Right. And no, no, you don't get a zipper, John C., because that's too easy to get open. <laughs> we need you to button that thing closed yeah. and leave it that way. Can you, right? can you please? Yeah, that's just, oh my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at the trial, Seven of them were convicted of involvement in the murders of the McCoy children and sentenced okay. to life in prison. Okay. Wall Hatfield, uh, the Justice of the Peace from Logan yeah. County, specifically may not have been involved in the attack for which he was charged, but he was convicted nonetheless. Uh, a lot of this trial seems to have, have been for the totality of the feud. Yeah. And Wall was involved in the kidnapping of the three McCoy sons and their murder. Yeah. So, okay, we didn't get him for that. We'll get him for this. He wasn't there. Doesn't matter. Let's just come on, move yeah. it. Yeah. We all know everybody. Everybody yeah. in on both sides of this river. We all know exactly what has happened here because we've all been right. talking about it for nigh on thirty years. Right. Like just for the, for the love of God and all that's decent, just lock these guys yeah. up. Yeah. Now, according to most accounts that I found of the feud, once Wall was convicted. He communicated with his brothers asking for their assistance in getting him out of jail, but they refused to over the fear of being arrested. Uh, he died in prison under circumstances which still remain officially unknown, mm. but uh, this happened just a few months after the trial. It yeah. could be anything from getting TB to one of the guards is a friend of the McCoys, like, yeah, and anything in between, yeah. Um, so, yeah, according to Wall's great-grandson, an official of the mm. Kentucky prison system reviewed the records at the request of a relative of the Hatfields and reported to her that he was placed in a cell block alongside several convicted members of the McCoy clan. Yeah. So there's that possibility. Uh, the cause of death and the location of his grave were never released officially to the Hatfield family, who still question the nature of his role in the feud. Okay. Yeah, well. Yeah. Now, Doc D. Mahan, the son-in-law of Valentine and the brother of Pliant Mahan, one of the eight Hatfields convicted, um, he he served 14 years in prison before returning home to live with his son, Melvin. Pliant Mahan, the son-in-law of Valentine and brother of Doc, served 14 years in prison before returning home to rejoin his ex-wife, 
who had remarried, but then she left her second husband to be with Pliant again, which. Ouch. Man. Yeah. Uh, Ellison Cottontop Mounts was the only right. one that was not sentenced to a life of imprisonment. Okay. Yeah, this is because he was led to believe that by admitting to killing Alifair, the jury would look at his mental disability as a mitigating circumstance and give him a lesser sentence. Okay. This did not happen. Instead, he was the first person in 40 years to be taken legally to the gallows, and he was the last one in that county to have it done. Son of a bitch. And this really gets it like my antipathy for the culture of certain areas. The one person that you killed was probably the one person that deserved the extra mercy of the court. Yeah. The, the deserved additional consideration. Right. Yeah. And that's the one that you tricked mm, yeah. into being your Judas goat. Well, oh, see, I love your use of that phrase. Thank you. Because that is, that is exactly what that is, is mm-hmm. there has to be purgation. Right. Somebody has to die. Yes. And this is, this is the lowest hanging fruit for us to get there. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's see, <laughs> are you, are you familiar with the, with the Reddit group? Uh, am I the asshole? AITA? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. people write stories about AITA and like, am you know, am I taking crazy pills? Am I, am I the asshole here or what? And, and the responses are YTA, you're the asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, NTA, not the asshole. Um, or, uh, not the asshole. You're the asshole. Or uh, everybody's an asshole. <laughs> ETA, and everybody's the asshole here. Like there's nobody. No, nobody gets away from this not being shitty. Right. You know. Um. I I have I have. A certain level of sympathy for Rannell mm-hmm. okay? because like look at what this man lost over the course of this whole debacle oh yeah um like oh my god um but like everybody else involved in this is is just is yeah. is a dick bag like there's nobody that comes out right. sympathetic at all yeah you know, and and the the need for not just the two families involved, but everybody around them to have a scapegoat, to have a mm-hmm. Judas goat, to have somebody who's like, okay, we can we can only put this. It, it's like subconsciously, we can only put this thing to bed when somebody has been officially killed by a third party, right? You know, authority has to step in and mm-hmm. exact a a blood tithe, right? You know, to to pay for the sins of these two families, and it's like, and the guy you pick is him, yeah. And everybody and everybody nods their heads and yeah, okay, well, there you go. You know, so sad, but you know, had to happen. No, it didn't. Fuck all of you. Yeah, you chose, you deliberately chose this. Yeah. Yeah. 
So thousands of people attended his uh, hanging in Pikeville, despite not being able to see much because uh, up close there was a base. Uh, the base of it was fenced in to comply with laws that had been passed recently prohibiting public executions. So they built a fence around the part where you'd actually see him swinging. So okay. you could see basically like shoulders and up from the top of the gallows. And then they'd pull the thing and he would drop. And still thousands of people gathered around to to to, to hear the trap door open. Pretty much. Yeah. So according to the Boston Globe, quote, the hanging took place half a mile outside of the pretty mountain town at the base of a low hill. Now, just I'm going to break in here for a second. If it's at the base of the low hill, just go up higher on the hill and you can kind of see in. Right. Yeah. Hence the thousands. Right. The scaffold was enclosed as required by law, but the enclosure was only 20 feet square and uncovered. The side of the hill formed a natural amphitheater and enabled the spectators to see everything that was going on. Hmm. You know who was in attendance, by the way? Randall McCoy. Nancy. Oh. Well, I bet oh. you Nancy was too, but Randall yeah. McCoy's there. Well, now before, yeah. I can. I get that. I totally get that. I, yeah. But there are I pictures can, can of him there. Oh, people really? photographed yeah um I'll, i will drop one into the chat in a few minutes um but there are pictures of of him there um at the at the hanging um it's it's it is wild now before dropping cotton top reportedly said quote the hatfields made me do it end quote and many th many people actually think that it was actually cap hatfield who killed uh alifair but cotton top got the blame okay now, Nancy McCoy had married Frank Phillips in 1895 after spending many years as his lover, because you remember she left uh, Johnsey as early as 1888. Yeah. Um, both had actually left their spouses to be with each other, uh, which is a strange pairing. Nonetheless, they produced several offspring together. Uh, Frank okay. Phillips continued with the behavior he had exhibited all of his adult life, um, even with Nancy at his side. Uh, and by that, I mean heavy drinking, womanizing, fighting, and gambling. Um, in 1898, he got into an argument with a friend of his over another woman, and the argument led to the friend shooting him in the hip, which developed into gangrene. That led to his leg being amputated, and he still died as a result of the wound. Um, three years later, Nancy died of tuberculosis, and the two were buried side by side in Pike, Kentucky. Pike County. This is going to sound awful, but it couldn't have happened to a nicer couple. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's like, it's one of those. Yeah, like you said, man, everybody's an asshole here. Like maybe maybe Nancy doesn't entirely deserve. I don't think she does. I'm putting in that. Yeah, but... I don't think she does in a lot of ways. Okay. I, it's weird to marry your cousin's uh boy toy. Um, yeah, after he's abandoned you. And it's it's or after he's abandoned her, and her and, yeah, and it's it's again, you know, it like there's so many things of this that are just so twisted and fucked. Um, <laughs> but like yeah. you know, I've explained that she had plenty of reason to hate the 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 Hatfields and to yeah, but there's nothing showing evidence that she was any kind of an architect of anything. Because remember, yeah, okay. she married right. John C when she was 16. Yeah, that's all right. 
Fair. So, all right. But she dies of TB. Um, and uh, so then now Randall McCoy ended up a broken and grief stricken, bitter old man by the time of the Battle of Grapevine Creek. Uh, he was actually president at Cotton Top's execution, but that didn't yeah. seem to improve his life much, as it turns out. Um, afterward, he got a job operating a ferry and living largely alone. His wife condition, his wife's condition worsened over time, and she ended up dying probably around 1890. Um, he lived until 1914. Oh, have, God Almighty! Yeah, having lost seven children in the course of the feud. Um, <sighs> And then he died because he was badly burned by a grease fire, a cooking grease fire in his house, um, and died a few days, excruciatingly painful days after. Uh, that. So no, I figured out there's there's one person here who's not the asshole. Oh okay, and that's the matriarch of the McCoys. Yeah, she's she's not the asshole. Yeah, like, wow. Yeah. My God, uh-huh. and and as much as he's not blameless, I I still feel really badly for Randall McCoy. Like, yeah, the I I cannot even imagine dealing with the level of loss. Oh, it just that he suffered. At some point, I can only imagine like you just get the most numb to it on some level like where you're just like like it's still it it, it can't not hurt yeah but at that point you're just like find me at the bottom of a bottle yeah you 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 don't have the emotional the emotional energy anymore to to have a reaction right yeah so devil ants hatfield was never brought to justice for his part in the feud at all and he seemed to only grow in power in logan county afterwards his timber business, his amassed wealth, and his influence all helped him to enjoy the twilight of his years. Um, he baptized late in life, and uh, when he died, his heirs paid for a life-sized Italian marble statue of him for his gravestone. Okay, so that is that is that is so poetically appropriate. Mm-hmm. Because through this entire thing, um, Devil Ants is, as a matter of fact, an 1880s into, you know, 1870s into 1880s um, uh, reincarnation mm-hmm. of a Renaissance Italian nobleman. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's all feudalism all the way down. <laughs> Um, yeah. all of his, all of his, you know, uh, capo di tutti capi, all, all of his, you know, uh, his, his, uh, gunman mm-hmm. took the fall for him. Yeah. And, and he was insulated by his wealth, by the land he owned and, right. and by his position. By the land it's, he stole. Yeah. Well, and again, <laughs> medieval Italian nobleman, right. like, <laughs> yeah. You know, how did your ancestors get this land? Well, they they fought for it. Right. Yeah. We like, showed up and took it from the people living in the Po Valley. What do you want? Yeah. Like, you know? come on. What the hell? You know, at the how did they get it? At the point of a sword. Mm-hmm. What? It's yeah. you know, it's it's 
and yeah. and I don't know, maybe on some level that's that's also part of the appeal of this story. Is maybe. that it echoes this shit from from so far back in in you know the, the the parallels to Romeo and Juliet become that much more clear when you when you think about it in that in that kind of uh review it through that kind of lens. Maybe. You know, I don't know. So but. what I've noticed um through this is that for all of their claims of honor of family honor and stuff like that and and maybe it's not even claims that they made but all the claims that have been laid at their feet yeah cap left and didn't ever really face justice of yeah. any kind yep they all decided not to help Wall out because that would mean they would get arrested. Yep. There's, you know, this this idea of, you know, like, well, family, nothing's more important than family. Like, we have to kill people who threaten our family. It's like, you know, when the chips are down, y'all don't seem to do fucking much for your family. No. So, you know, Ellison dies and leaves mm-hmm. his son um, which, you know, ostensibly his son gets cared for by everyone else. But at the same time, why are you taking somebody who has developmental delays on a vendetta attack against a family's house? Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're not looking for a fourth for golf, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um... So, so for all this this talk of family loyalty and shit, it doesn't seem to go universally. Well, I mean, it never does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mean, I think maybe at, we're ascribing it to them, to be honest. We're romanticizing well, and objectifying them in there so is, doing. There is romanticizing, there is objectifying, but there mm-hmm. is also, there is an element of honor culture. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have honor culture or you have shame culture, right? Yep anthropological terms here um and in honor culture it's remarkable how flexible honor culture can be under certain circumstances mm-hmm. right and yeah. and you know honor culture is uh and i'm painting with a broad brush to save time sure but there is there is this hypermasculine uh consistent appeal to violence to solve issues. Yes. Um there's there, that low threshold of violence. Yes, it's an incredibly low threshold of violence. There is this um uh again, hypermasculine, toxic masculinity, uh kind of uh denigration of the feminine. And there is this idea that, well, you know, the, the, the role of the role of the men in the, in the family, the clan, the whatever is to, you know, defend the women. But the moment the women step out of line, the women are the ones who get punished for shit. Right. And, and the women's the, and the women are the ones who wind up suffering, uh, consequences a whole lot more frequently. Oh yeah. Than men do. Um, and, and so the, the, uh, self, uh, visualization of individuals within honor culture, I think is one thing. And then the observable 
behavior and the reality of what our culture winds up doing mm-hmm. is another. And so, yes, all of this, you know, well, you know, this was a family feud, you know, and there, the, the honor of the family was paramount. A lot of that is outsiders romanticizing it and outsiders objectifying the people involved, dehumanizing the people involved and oversimplifying everything. But I do think um, in their own heads, the patriarchs of these two families probably had thoughts about that, that like, we got to protect the family. We got to do this, that, and the other thing. And they used, they would certainly, I'm, I would bet a whole box of donuts that uh, Devil Ants Hatfield, if you were to question him about, you know, the decisions he made and the stuff that he sanctioned, the justification he would give would mention defending his family, defending, you know, the 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 honor of his family name, whatever. Mm-hmm. He'd totally use that for justification. Mm-hmm. And then the moment you brought up, well, you know, what about your brother who you let die in jail? Um, depending on circumstances, uh, you know, you you might look down the barrel of a gun because you just insulted him, or he might right. just walk away and not answer, right? Right. So, you know, I, I think I think there's a there's a mixture of self-justification based on these ideas out of honor culture and us and everybody else as outsiders romanticizing this whole story. Mm-hmm. I think it's both. No, I I, I do not disagree. I, I think yeah. also I, I don't want to overlook the fact that it's so convenient how much this honor mattered. When it came to land acquisition, <laughs> well, it always historically it always does. Like, I mean, yeah. look at the Hundred Years' War. Like, <laughs> yeah, look at what happened between yeah. between the Plantagenets and and the and the French. Um, yeah. um and like, I mean, I know there's there's certain you know subsets of historians who'd be like, uh, you say the Plantagenets, the French, like they're two different groups. Yeah, I, you, yes, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like between these two factions of French speaking, you know, Normans, um, you know, they they justify honor culture and and the and all of the appendages of it, mm-hmm. I think, wind up being used as justification for might makes right. And the guy with the most swords at his disposal, the guy with the most guns at his disposal, the guy with the most money to pay for all of the above. Right. Is the one who always has the most honor at stake. Or. Because that's convenient. After the fact, he's the one whose honor dictates the story. Yes. That too. So. Well, and and that just goes back to the the victor gets to write the history. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, and again, most of the sources that are available are Hatfield-based sources, right? Yeah. And so I, well, because you know, so many of the McCoys got fucking killed. Yeah, that too. <laughs> you know, there, yeah, you know, you, um, you eliminate enough chroniclers. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, you eliminate the the you know the the people that would then produce the children that would then yeah. do the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so so you've got that. Um, I, I will say in my research, I spent a lot of time online going to a lot of different websites and stuff like that. I didn't get out to any archives or out to any uh, libraries yeah. or anything like that. 
but based on what I was able to pull together online, you know, I, I tried to, you know, I mean, shit, I read to you from the will of Perry yeah. Klein's dad, Rich Jake, you know, yeah. like, like the, normally the story starts with the murder of Asa Harmon. Yeah. I'm like, no, nah, let's, let's go back further. Yeah. So, so that takes us to June of 1951. Um, there's a movie called coming round the mountain that gets released. Oh, I already know this is going to be a shit show. It's Abbott and Costello. Oh, man. And it's directed by Charles Lamont, who seemed to almost specialize in films that made fun of people from that area. Um, So, like, That's if you go an back. interesting niche of. It of really? Uh, yeah. Wow. All right. So Abbott plays a theater agent who booked his client, the Manhattan hillbilly herself, Dorothy McCoy. Uh, he books her at a nightclub to perform at the same time as an idiot escape artist who gets stuck in his own prop on his first night. His name is the great Wilbert. Um, he's played by Costello. Uh, he's yeah. He screams for help, which Dorothy recognizes his scream. She recognizes his scream as the McCoy battle cry. Uh, <laughs> Are you kidding? No. The McCoys, like, they can't catch a fucking break? No. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know, but, I mean, in, in this research, I found audio records of rebels telling you what their battle cry was during World War or during the Civil War. Like, guys really? who were alive in the 20s, yeah, or like, this is oh, what our shit. rebel battle cry. And, like, at the, the 50th anniversary of... um. Gettysburg, Gettysburg, you know, where the, the handshaking and all that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, it's one of those kind of get togethers. And they're like, Yeah, when you boys would hear that, would you think, oh, we knew we were gonna get charged and blah blah. And so there's a lot of rebel yells, um, rebel battle cries. Okay. So so that is a thing. And so she okay. recognizes it as the McCoy battle cry. Um, and so the whole comedy is broadly played. They end up having to go back to Kentucky to find the gold of that old squeeze box McCoy, um, their long dead patriarch uh, and and his buried treasure. Um, and they have to talk to Granny McCoy, of course, and they have to have a turkey shoot competition with the nearby Winfield clan's champion, Devil Dan Winfield. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Also in the movie, there's uh, Voodoo. Um, there's a love potion. <sighs> there's witchcraft, and of course, Clark Winfield, the son of Devil Dan Winfield, and Dorothy end up falling in love. Uh, eventually, there's a wedding, and the Winfield clan shows up, itching to fight. And a stray bullet breaks the love potion jar, which causes Devil Dan to fall under its sway inadvertently and fall for Wilbert McCoy who's yeah. been in love with Dorothy for uh, who's in love with Clark, but betrothed to Clora, daughter of Kayla McCoy, the patriarch of that clan. Oh my God. All right. Clora, who's called Matt for reasons I couldn't figure out. Um, she shows them a map hidden in Wilbert's con concertina, which then leads to a mine in Winfield territory. Uh, Devil Dan, of course, helps them enter the mine, still feeling the effects but also figuring that cooperation is better than feuding when it comes to finding the money that the other family buried on his property. The whole party eventually breaks through the rock, finding themselves in a vault filled with gold. It's Fort Knox. And, and they all get arrested. 
you know, the funny thing is that's a very uh, Monty Python kind of ending. Well, it's it's Abbott, it's Abbott and Costello. Yeah, I, like, I know, I know. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. All right. But in this movie, you still have feuding, star-crossed lovers, old yeah. patriarchs, yeah. and guns. Um, but just like the cartoons were, right? And so again, these Sorry, people are. I'm, I'm, yeah. You, you mentioned you mentioned the guns, and and I just think John Milius. Guns. <laughs> That's mostly what I added to the script. A lot of right. guns. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, anyway. Yeah. No. So all of these things are essentially trapping trappings that help us to like use these people as a plot device uh, to play for comedy. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's the same tropes mm -hmm. being regurgitated. Exactly. Now, in 1960, in January, which tells me that something was creatively lacking or present at this time, um, we had the 19th episode of Bonanza called The Gunmen. Oh, no. This one takes place in Kiowa Flats, Texas, and Haas and Joe get mistaken for the Slades, gunslinger brothers who've been hired by the McFaddens to kill the Hatfields. Oh, my God. Okay, wait. Uh -huh. Hold on. Uh-huh. Okay, so this is Bonanza. Uh-huh. Okay. They're they're a Nevada family. Like they end up in Kiowa Flats. Okay. They they're on a cattle drive? Yeah. Into Texas. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Or they're TV. going to to bring back, I forget. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, they they get mistaken for these these guns for hire. Right. Right. Okay. Slades. Yeah. Yeah. So they were hired by the McFaddens to kill the Hatfields in town. And so they end up captured and they have to figure out their way out of a feud that has nothing to do with them. Yeah. Um, eventually, the sheriff tells Haas and Joe how the feud began. And it was because 30 years ago, the Hatfields hog disappeared. And that night, the McFaddens, who didn't own a hog, had pork for dinner. Okay. Well, that's now, a that's a call back to... Right, but it's also Maybe. an inversion, and I'm not sure if they did that on purpose for any particular reason, or they wanted to cast the Hatfields as the aggrieved party because the writers would have grown up reading more sympathetically about the Hatfields. Mm. But mm, either way, there be. you go. So Haas and Joe realize that there's going to be a massacre between the feuding families and that the town will be hurt for it. So they essentially convince the women to do a Sabine women thing uh, plus Lisa Strada, um, standing between the two feuding clans and refusing to do anything womanly until both sides agree to stop fighting. Uh, the beautiful and young Amanda McFadden tells the gunslinging hero of the Hatfields, Ants Hatfield, that she's waiting for him to come to her, but he better not come with a gun in his hand. And of course, Ants isn't a fool. Okay. He drops the gun and hurries over, and the feud's over because pussy. You know, there are worse reasons to stop fighting. Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, this I mean, was a reason that got people fighting in the 1880s. So, yeah. So I, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Now, in December of that same year, December of 1960, <laughs> okay. also on TV, uh, the Andy Griffith show's ninth episode aired. Okay. <laughs> so that's. Two this, shows. This shit showed up in Mayberry. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy. that's two that shows in the same year, yeah. both kind of bucolic, right? Yeah. Um, kind of. 
right. bringing up the feud. I mean, Andy is clear. I mean, he they go down to the fishing hole. Like it's it's Mayberry, yeah, he, but it's yeah, it's rural-ish, you know, rural yeah, adjacent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um kind of. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's close it's, to as bucolic as you can get. It's, okay, but it's yeah. small country town, you know? Yeah. Like yeah, right. So by this point, uh, it's, you know, TV depictions of hillbillies seems to be growing in popularity. And again, star-crossed lovers. Um, right. The Carters and the Wakefields, they're feuding. And their kids want to get married. And both patriarchs break up the marriage that Andy is performing. And they perform it, <clears throat> they break it up at gunpoint. And nobody gets killed because police back then were less awful somehow. Okay. So, of course, well, you know, Andy and Barney being the police in question. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, in this one, the feud has been bloodless for 87 years, taking it back to 1873. I don't know if they did that on purpose or if they just were like four generations back, whatever. Yeah. And of course, nobody remembers how this one started. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, for okay. such times. And, and, <laughs> uh-huh because andy griffith is a bit country if you remember there was a boy that was friends with opie for a bit who got into trouble and andy's solution was to tell the father to beat his kid like take him out behind the woodshed because mm -hmm. these are these are the solutions right yeah so this is the era in which this stuff is being written yeah you know so yeah. andy suggests that the patriarch settle the feud with one duel between them and uh, Andy says, <clears throat> now, you know how folks in these parts feel about their feuding. Now, what if it was to get out that we had an 87-year-old feud a going, uh, a going on here with nary a killing to show for it? Why, we'd be the laughing stock of the state. <laughs> Again, I think this actually gets back to what we saw with Spike Jones and what we've seen with the, the cartoons. Uh, the mm -hmm. Disney one as well. They like doing this. They yeah. like feuding. It's part this of their culture. It's yeah. their thing. Yeah. So, of course, the old men both run off and the young couple gets married. And the thing is, people do feel a certain way about their feuds in these types of areas. Um, While the Hatfields and the McCoys were gobbling up all the press at the time, the Rowan County War was a short three-year feud that claimed 20 lives and wounded 16. Holy cow. Right. And we don't hear shit about it. And it lasts for just three years. And it's got a bigger body count and a bigger wounded count. And it went from 1884 to 1887 in eastern Kentucky. Honestly, four counties north of West Pike County. Wow. And then there's the Underwood-Holbrook feud, which led to 20 more people dying and killed all the males of the proper Underwood clan completely. Oh, shit, really? Yeah. Um, there's a guy named John Martin who was a part of that clan, uh, but he's obviously not in Underwood, right? Yeah. And, and so he was able to go and start up the Rowan County War when he shot and murdered Floyd Tolliver, uh, who was a political rival in that county. Uh, but this feud was ended by a marriage between the families, actually, and not fanned any further. Oh, all right. There's also the French Eversole feud, which also took place in Kentucky from 1887 to 1884. It's almost like there was a tag out going on. Okay. Um, three counties south and west from Pike County. 
So four counties north and west, three counties south and west, you've got multiple feuds. And this one involved the families of Benjamin Fulton French and Joseph C. Eversole. And this feud led to the death of about 20 men. And it was ostensibly about a woman, the clerk of a store that French had owned, uh, the, the store that French owned, not the, not the clerk. Um, he saw a woman and was smitten by her, but chagrined because she was enjoying the company of Fulton French. So he went to Eversole and spread a rumor about French, claiming that French said that he was looking to kill Eversole. So the clerk, pissed that French was getting it on with the girl that he liked, went and told another guy, French wants to kill you. This leads to Eversole gathering protection to him via his family and kinship and friendship relations. Um, and that causes French to do the same because rumors were abounding that this was preparation to do harm to French. And and more likely, though, like, so that's what we were told. It's more likely about coal rights, because if you consider the timing, this particular yeah. feud found both principals in the feud dead because of it, although at very different times. Joseph Eversole was murdered in April of 1888. Benjamin Fulton French ran into Eversole's widow, Susan Combs Eversole, and her son Harry in the lobby of a hotel in 1913. Harry pulled out a pistol and shot him dead in 1913. Um, actually, no, not dead. I apologize. Um, because he was actually French was always wearing a bulletproof vest wherever he went. So it was not a fatal shot, um, but at that close range, he managed to shoot French in the spleen. Um, French died a year later from the wound. Uh, wow. And then Susan paid the fine for disturbing the peace, and that was about all, all that happened as a result. Good Lord. Now, lest you think that this is a Kentucky-only thing, in West Virginia, the Hart's Creek region, which includes Lincoln and Logan counties... The Lincoln County feud killed four people between 1882 and 1889. This is one that's <laughs> this is one that's going on between the Broomfields and the Dinguses, D or Din. I know, D I N G E S S. Dingus. Sure, the Dinguses. Okay, I know it's so. I'm like. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me. Between the dildos and the shitholes. <laughs> uh, what the hell? All right. So so the wow. Broomfields and the Dinguses are on one side, and the Adkinses or the Adkins, the Adams, the Hall, the Runyon, and the Nestor families were on the other. I assume there's a lot of intermarriage going on there. Well, yeah. Now the sides had so many cross-pollinated vendettas amongst and between each other that no family existed without allies amongst the family that they were lined up against. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this specific oh feud led to that county get it to getting its lines redrawn. Really? Yeah. Wow. And if we want to keep it Appalachian, Eastern Tennessee and Western Virginia, near the Cumberland Gap, saw the Green-Jones War which had so many similarities to the Hatfield-McCoy feud, a guy named Asa, people who served on opposite sides of the war who got killed, a pig's contested custody, star-crossed lovers, someone getting stabbed 25 times, although all of these were in the head. Um, what? <laughs> what the fuck? I, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Like, I'm hold on. Yeah. I'm gonna have to stop you right there. It's it's one thing to hear that right. somebody was stabbed a right. whole lot of times. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Twenty six times. You're like, holy shit. That's, that's awful. Oh my god. Yeah. That's horrible. Twenty five times in the in the head. head. <laughs> that's that's a whole other level of of nasty. Really right is. There. That's it really like is. like There's it's not one that thing. much soft tissue there. No, you've got to really like, fucking mean it 25 you, times. You have to be committed. Yeah. I like I'm at I, the age where like midway through a session of self-loving, if I'm not really feeling it, I'm just going to quit. Like, which is like, ah, you know, it's all right. It's just not going to good enough right now. Good enough. Yeah. You know. you know, this is somebody holding somebody. And stabbing them or chasing somebody. I don't know which one's worse. Like uh, but and and having the energy to stab them 25 times in the head. Like, how angry do you have to be? Right. <laughs> like oh it has to escalate, God. right? Like, like between <laughs> times 15 and 20? Yeah. Like what what and what oh stops you at God. 25? Like you just that's gotta be fatigue, right? Like or the oh shit, breaks. my labor. Like, no. you know. Yeah, or the knife breaks. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's be honest. Like as you said, there's not a lot of soft tissue going on there. You're gonna get something wedged somewhere, and and like, oh my god, that's awful. Yeah, and I've been so desensitized to it that I'm laughing as I'm talking yeah. to you about this. Like because to hear that somebody got stabbed in the head is quite something. Because that's because that's just comically awful. Yeah. So in addition to that, you have houses under siege, you have children getting killed, and it lasted a long time. This one lasted up through the late 1890s. You could make the argument that this was actually a more bloody feud because upwards of 60 fucking people died in this feud. What? Yeah. Wow. It stayed within the state of Tennessee. Um, uh, after and after a time uh when the governor had to threaten martial law to shut it down do you think the fact that it stayed inside the one state might be part of the reason we haven't heard about it compared to the to the Hatfield McCoy likely feud? likely cuz yeah. the other ones also stayed within their counties yeah there, there so is it's a, something it's a about local thing as opposed right. to something that explodes and expands out over you know borders. it's like how Eddie Izzard said like you know if you kill like Two million of your own people. Well done. Kill two million of someone else's people. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> so yeah, Ugh. yeah. So so Andy's off the cuff remark about how fe- people feel about their feuds and they yeah. want them bloody. Pretty salient. Yeah, considering where Mayberry is kind of quasi located. You know. Yeah. So I'm just gonna say. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that since you, you know, lived in the, in the cesspit hole that is North Florida. Levy County, baby. <laughs> I was I'm, in the county I'm... seat of Bronson. 804 <laughs> people when my family was there. 800 when we left. <laughs> when you left, yeah. Two separate, uh, two separate cemeteries still because you don't want blacks and whites to uh, rot together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that that being said, I'm 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 surprised you didn't mention the uh, Barbara Mizell feud. Oh, I North I kept Florida. it I kept it localized to that area, okay. but that feud did in fact come up. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But go ahead. Um, give the because, quick and dirty. Yeah. Well, because it's the only reason I mentioned it is because uh, when my parents were telling me at some point uh, about their time in Milton, Florida, um, they they remember uh, there being uh, murders committed while they were living there. Yes. That were still connected to the Barbara Mizell feud that mm-hmm. dated back at that point a hundred years. Yes. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Um the the Hatfields and McCoys sucked all the air out of the room in terms of press coverage, but this this was not an isolated incident. Oh no, there there were kind of phenomenon. I want to say there were over thirty deaths in that one. Yeah. It was a short feud too, if I recall. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh and my favorite part, how Florida can you get? There were no convictions. None. <laughs> all right, y'all yeah. done? All that's, right. That's North Florida for you. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So yeah, I think that's where I want to leave it, actually, because okay. uh when we return, I like starting with a cartoon each time. Um, okay. when we return, okay. we're gonna talk about the Flintstones. Oh, because of course we are. And that's the thing is like, okay, like there has not been a serious movie made since what the, the one that I think I opened this episode with or closed last episode with um, in 1946, 49, 40, 49, 49, right? 49. So it's with 49, 14 year old female lead, right? There's no movie up through and i mean honestly i'm going to spoil it for you right now there's a movie in 1975 but it doesn't hit the theater it's a made made for tv movie Mm. so the last time there's a feature film of it was 49 uh it's Hmm. actually i'm trying to find the next movie that like hits the theaters it's almost all cartoons and sitcoms and of course bonanza yeah um and then you get to the made-for-TV stuff, uh, the made-for-TV movies, and and you know finally. But then we dive back into cartoons. It's really interesting considering. Uh, so this is what I'm gleaning at this point. You tell yeah. me what you're gleaning in a second. Okay. For such a imagination capturing feud, mm-hmm. for one that was all over the place, it seems to be used for comedy more than anything else. Yeah. And it's never actually taken on as a serious course of study. It's um oh no, I'm sorry, there was one other film uh since 49, it was Abbott and Costello. Um yeah. but you know, it yeah, just proves, proves point. the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so for something that that sees the imagination so much, it mm-hmm. was so intertwined with the fabric of what connected our country, that is railroads and shit. Yeah. Um it certainly gets played for laughs more than anything else. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the reason it does is there's a, there's a perfect storm of factors kind of involved. Mm-hmm. There is uh classism. There is, um, there is there is a a cultural elitism just in general a cultural elitism uh with the people that do most of the writing of mass media are coming from a very northern very 
uh, at least at least north end of mid Atlantic states because yep. New York isn't technically New England, um, but it's it's very much Yankee uh, mm-hmm. kind of kind of conception of of what Southerners in a very broad brush kind of way are about, and this is a subgroup of Southerners that we're that we're talking about. So there's the elitism there. Um, there is urban versus rural. I would Go say on. that's more than the Southerner thing because okay. these people are played as hill people. It is not yeah. it is not people speaking with a drawl so much as, you know, that it is it is you know. backwoods. Yes. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That that's fair. But um, it is urban versus rural. And again, it's it's it's, very it's much. the the media coverage is made by people who own large conglomerates of of media as that well was, as yeah go on yeah the the next thing that i was that i was going to bring up is the uh you know the people who who walk away in the case of hatfields and mccoys it's devil Ants hatfield who's the one who has the most money who yep. you know by by virtue of having the most money um, number one is is capable of of insulating himself or uh you know just having the resources means he he kind of wins yep um but then beyond that because he owned the land and the people who are driving the narrative are looking for property rights mineral rights you know, all of that kind of stuff. He's somebody who is closer to them. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't get uh, caricatured in the same way. He doesn't get vilified, perhaps to the extent that he deserves, because like everybody in his neighborhood called him devil for a reason. Like, right. you know, um, and... You know, it occurs to me as I'm as I'm talking about this, that like the the we haven't gotten to talking about it yet because, you know, chronologically it's it's a ways off. But uh, Kevin Costner portrays Devil Ants Hatfield in the 2012 miniseries. That'll be in the next episode. So don't go too much. into yeah. that. Yeah. OK. But but he also Kevin Costner also plays uh, the patriarch of a cattle family. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get in into Yellowstone. How, how he okay. starts. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So like, you know, there's some parallels going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a certain category of feudal figure who gets romanticized in a, I don't want to say less dehumanizing, but a, a less denigrating way. Uh, in mm-hmm. in these portrayals and and Devil Ants Hatfield is is that guy no. um compared to his you know his his opposite number who's is really the one who lost the most and suffered the most uh right. you know uh, as as we've already talked about you know Randall Randall gets portrayed as this you know uh sad sack uh uh loser and like I, you know, it, there's there's something very telling about that that characterization. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 
Uh, Devil so, Ants yeah, is, I, is I, often portrayed as cunning, whereas Randall is often portrayed as pathetic or pitiful. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, there's there's so much going on with with the with the decisions about the way everybody involved in this gets portrayed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and again, we so, haven't even gotten to that that particular. Yeah, we haven't even so. gotten. Yeah. So, so, all right. Cool. Well, uh, what you want to recommend to people to read? Um, right now, I don't have a recommendation to give. Um, yeah, I'm I'm in the middle of grading a whole lot of student papers, so I'm not spending very much time reading anything fun. How about you? Uh, well, this won't be fun, but I do think it's worth uh, <laughs> worth getting people to read. It's called The Hate Next Door, Undercover Within the New Face of White Supremacy by Matson Browning and Tawny Browning. Um, he was a cop um, who, if I recall correctly, he lived in Arizona. Um, okay. And he's an under undercover detective. And so he would infiltrate these uh, white supremacist groups. And his wife is, I think, a neurologist, um, and and she would like help explain those kinds of things. And uh, it's a it's kind of a memoir of their experience of his infiltrating those uh, those uh, those groups, groups, and okay. and getting people brought to justice, uh, and and that kind of thing. So. Um, I, I dare say it does have a hopefulness to it, but you have to slog through a lot to get there. Yeah. So, I, I was going to say some of that has to be harrowing to read. Quite so. Quite so. So that is what I will be recommending. So, all right. Um, do you want to be found anywhere? I do not. All right. I'm going to tell <laughs> people to go on March 1st to the comedy spot, uh, to go see our, our triumphant return of capital punishment so cool and then where can they find over the moon to hear that that that's that that's on i'm I'm very happy for for you and everybody involved in that project that's that's great yeah so where can they find uh this podcast they can they can find us collectively at wubba 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 dot geekhistorytime.com uh we can also be found on the apple podcast app or on spotify um and obviously you found us somewhere wherever that might be and wherever that is please do take the time to subscribe please do take the time to give us the five star review that you know we've earned and um yeah other than that i think i think that's 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 the big message there cool um and so well then for a geek history of time else to add i'm damien harmony And I'm Ed Blaylock, and until next time, keep rolling 20s.